Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. My guest this week calls himself a paid lance reporter. We'll get to what that means in just a bit. But he's written for Slate, Deadspin, and Sports on Earth. And his latest piece for Pacific Standard is what brings him to the podcast today. He provides, as he calls it, a history of bad sports writing and how the hot take is ruining it. Tomas Rios, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, I want to talk with you about the current state of sports writing, but first, a look at how we got there. And I think after reading your article several times now, I can distill your argument into two sentences. Sports writing began with writers like Grantland Rice, who treated athletes like heroes, and it continued with writers like Dick Young, who attacked athletes because they weren't heroes. Does that about sum up your case? I mean, yeah, that's basically the uh, gist of it in terms of how they've influenced the way we view athletes, definitely. Describe how this happened over time and how writers reacted to each other. You seem to imply that the Dick Youngs of the world came as a uh, a backlash, if you will, to the Grant Rices of the world. Yeah, they definitely were. I mean, when you uh, look at the early history of, you know, at least uh, print sports writing in America, you're talking about guys like Grantland Rice. And these are guys who basically treated sports as an opportunity to create these sort of mythic hero narratives. If you go back and read the actual writing that they've left behind, it's kind of striking how they treat sports as these like widescreen Greek tragedies and impose (laughs) all these different like moral values and judgments onto players based on nothing other than the way they play the game. Right. And it produced this very like flowery, faux poetic sort of language about athletes. And, you know, this was kind of a reflection of society at the time, which viewed sport, you know, viewed sports as a purely as, as a pure diversion from the world at large where, you know, you didn't mix politics with sports. You didn't discuss, you know, what went on behind the scenes. You just kind of let it sort of be this, like, widescreen movie for people. And the writing very much reflected that. And then you saw, you know, really beginning in the 50s and 60s, you know, as is always the case, the next generation kind of rebelled against the traditions of the prior one. <laughs> and you saw, you know, writers like Dick Young, for example, who was, you know, one of the kings of sports writing and arguably the most influential sports writer to ever live, he kind of, instead of making, you know, heroes out of athletes, he just basically put himself in the position of moral arbiter who decided the degree to which athletes failed to meet these impossible standards. Mm -hmm. And they started mixing in more of the, you know, behind the scenes sort of coverage, getting inside the locker room. You know, this also really coincided with the era where, you know, access to the locker room became a cornerstone of sports writing and sports reporting. And naturally that influenced it. And then you had these guys, you know, they were finding out that athletes used drugs, they had affairs, you know, all the things that, you know, humans do if you put them in sufficiently large numbers together. And all of a sudden they became, you know, targets for, you know, scorn and, you know, that sort of stuff sells. It works. Like, you know, if you put out like a piece that's like, you know, viciously attacking an athlete, people respond to that, whether it's good or bad, people still read it. And so then that was really when, 
you know, the whole notion of the uh, sports hot take was born, where you just kind of look at athletes as, you know, somehow they owe us a higher moral standard than we would expect of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Or if it's, you know, if it is the moral standard that we expect of ourselves, we give them no slack for falling short of it the way that we give ourselves slack for falling short of it. And so what you end up with now in sports writing is because, you know, writers have seen that, you know, that's something that'll land you that featured columnist spot. They're starting to mimic it and, you know, coinciding with the age of the internet, all of a sudden it's become the most ubiquitous form of sports writing there is. Any story, the first thing you're going to get after the initial news blip is going to be someone screaming at an athlete and pretending (laughs) to be their dad. And I would argue, too, that straight reporting, especially in terms of the Grantland Rice, you know, Grantland Rice wasn't a columnist. He was a essentially a reporter reporting on the events of the game. Now, he did it, as you said, in a in a mythic Plato-esque style way. But now the people with the hot takes are the columnists and the straight reporters in this era where you can watch almost any game you want, almost any highlight you want. Straight reporting has really gone out the window in a large sense. It still exists, of course, because you need it on a very basic level, but it certainly doesn't hold the same necessity that it once did. Well, I mean, I think, you know, sports reporting isn't, you know, perhaps as, you know, valued as it once was in certain, you know, in certain publications and outlets. But I do think that the influence of this style of sports writing has definitely seeped into sports reporting. I mean, right now, the big story that everyone is talking about is Sports Illustrated's, you know, quote unquote, expose on the Oklahoma State University football team. And, you know, I would like to think that a sane person who reads that would either laugh at it or be disgusted by it (laughs) because you're basically making a big deal out of, you know, the fact that, oh, some women in college like to have sex with football players and, oh, these guys who, you know, make billions of dollars for the universities and the NCAA are getting a little bit of money under the table when no one is, you know, the people who wrote the article at least aren't really taking the time to kind of view it through this more wide lens perspective that, you know, puts it in the proper context. That's good reporting puts things in the proper context and hot takes operate context free. They basically take what happened and, you know, kind of force it into whatever pre-existing narrative is in place to make it more powerful. And, you know, now you have, you know, the reporters involved with the piece, Thayer Evans in particular, several of the people who were quoted on the record have openly accused him of approaching them on false pretenses for the purposes of the piece, saying that he wanted to, you know, discuss their personal stories. And like, he wasn't, Mm -hmm. it's, it's becoming somewhat clear that based on these allegations, he did some pretty unethical things in terms of getting people to talk on the record. And then there are even more people saying that the quotes that they gave have been taken severely out of context and misconstrued for the purposes of the piece. So I think that, you know, saying that, you know, sports reporting has kind of managed to operate independently of this trend towards more editorialization style writing, it kind of, you know, disguises the fact that we're starting, we're seeing that, you know, more and more reporting is failing to put things in the proper context and putting them inside of these narratives that are easily digestible and allow us to make easy judgments about the people involved. Well, and I would almost, I, w- I wouldn't say necessarily that 
uh, sports reporting has been separated from the columnizing, but I would almost say that because basic game reporting and the reporting of the events of sports has been marginalized in the modern era, that the way that the way that writers and reporters now draw attention to their work is often by, like you said, having hot takes. I was thinking of, I saw um, Keith Olbermann's new show. He had Jason Whitlock on, and they were talking about, I think it was the big Rex Ryan should be fired saga mm-hmm. that came out a few weeks ago. And Whitlock made the point that newspapers are struggling. They need their sports writers to drive traffic in unorthodox ways. And that's how you wind up with sensationalized pieces, Twitter beefs, all that. And, you know, you always had columnists offering their takes on things, but now you've got everybody in the sports department feeling the need to do that. And so a lot of the, a lot of the good takes are probably diluted in a sea of just, you know, people piling on, like you said. I mean, yeah, you need to have a, I mean, it's always been true of writing that you need to have a recognizable voice in order to stand out from the crowd. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm guilty of trying to hone my voice. Every good writer I know is guilty of trying to hone their voice. It's just the reality of what it is. I think the problem is that, you know, people have kind of looked to, you know, you can't really say the wrong examples because these are people who've been successful. But at the same time, they're kind of perpetuating something quite negative. They're putting themselves out there in a way where, I mean, they're essentially doing, whether or not they're aware of it, they're essentially functioning as trolls. Hmm. They just happen to have access to the locker room or access to the right context or whatever it may be. But, I mean, that's essentially what they're doing. They're trolling people and it's working. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I I think it's a really, I, I thought your article was so interesting. And at the same time, I was thinking about it because, and I can speak on this with some background because I worked on in local sports on the TV side for several years, and I still work in a local TV newsroom, even though I'm on the news side now. And beyond that, I'm a huge sports fan, so I'm a huge consumer of sports media. And I have to say, in terms of consuming sports media, I can't recall a better time in history because, you know, while I think you what you're saying has merit in that those with the biggest spotlight often seem to have the least to contribute – there's just so much content out there now, intelligent content at that, thanks to the rise of blogs and the internet, uh, team-specific blogs. And for me as a sports fan, when I think of the teams that I follow and the sports that I follow, I have very little trouble finding the kinds of analysis and coverage that I like to see. And I like to think of myself as a sophisticated sports fan. Would you disagree with that assessment of the landscape right now? No, I wouldn't disagree with it at all. I mean, I think the key word in the headline of the article is a brief history of bad sports writing. I'm talking specifically about bad sports writing. And, you know, oftentimes in any genre, it's the worst of the stuff that ends up being the most popular. Um, You know, you can look at sports writing for that example. Yes, you can go to any number of team-specific blogs and, you know, get the sort of like in-depth, super detailed analysis and news that the hardcore sports fan is going to want. Um, you can go to some of the more like, you know, I guess they've been called the prestige sports writing websites like, you know, Grantland, the classical sports on earth. Um, I think Deadspin is absolutely one of the most enduring high quality outlets there is. Um, but at the same time, if you kind of ju- the fact that there is good sports writing doesn't really change the fact that some of the most, you know, well-compensated, 
high-profile sports writers are the ones most guilty of the things that I'm talking about. And, you know, because these people keep on having so much success, it perpetuates it. And it's always been the case in sports writing where, like, the most popular, famous writers also happen to be some of the ones who have the worst ideas about things. I think it's great that there are great sports writers out there right now. I mean, there are plenty I admire. Brian Phillips, David Roth, John Boyce. I made a point of mentioning some of them in the piece as examples of how writing adapts to negative trends. But at the same time, it it doesn't change the fact that, you know, for example, Jason Whitlock can you know, speak out on this stuff, but he's as guilty of it as anyone. And you mentioned him in your article. Yeah, I mentioned him specifically in the article for writing these like bizarro alternate reality hot takes about how Jay-Z is to blame for black America's problems. I mean, it's objectively pretty absurd stuff. And yet he's the guy. And that's really what it boils down to. These guys, they have success and they think that their success means that they're doing things, you know, quote unquote, right. That they think that what they believe and what they feel is right. And that's how you end up with someone like Jason Whitlock on national TV talking like he's the arbiter of quality (laughs) and restraint when, you know, just what was it last year? He made a really racist joke about Jeremy Lin on Twitter. Right. Like these guys don't understand that credibility is not like, you know, some perpetual commodity. It's something you can lose. And I think many of them lack it. You uh, in your timeline of bad sports writing, you start again with the Grantland Rices who, you know, deify athletes to a certain degree. And then you get to the Dick Youngs who rebel against that and expect more out of athletes than maybe societally we should. Where are we on that pendulum now? Are we still holding athletes to a higher standard? Is, is it that kind of that role model syndrome that if these are people that our kids are looking up to, that they need to be held to higher, higher moral standards in addition to what they're doing on the field or on the court or in the ring? I mean, it's definitely still prevalent. I, you know, mentioned, you know, current writers who are doing it and are, you know, quite famous. You know, uh, Jeff Passan of Yahoo Sports wrote a piece about Ryan Braun following his suspension where he referred to him as a cockroach and a bunch of other real childish things. And, you know, he's a pretty universally respected baseball columnist for Yahoo sports. That's a really strong, solid gig to have career wise. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, I think in the younger generation of sports writers, the ones still on their way, still developing, still, you know, not quite at that level, at least in terms of, you know, prestige or regard, I think you're definitely seeing a counterweight to that coming into effect where more and more writers are kind of just treating athletes as people, talking about them like they're people, not, you know, applying any, you know, especially high or especially low moral standard to them, but just simply talking about them the way they deserve, the way that anyone deserves to be talked about as people. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Tomas Rios, paid lance sports writer. Tomas, I told you I would uh, bring this up. Describe the life of a paid lance sports writer. Well, you know, the term paid lance is one that I stole off another freelance writer named Aisha Siddiqui, who does like a lot of cultural analysis stuff. And I just thought it was a great term to steal. And <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, basically what it means is, you know, I guess I just don't like the... I guess I just don't like the word freelance. I've done writing for free and now I'm at a point where I'm going to get paid for it. And 
it's just a it, it suits me better. Now you wrote this piece about the uh, the history of sports writing or the history of bad sports writing, but you mostly write about MMA and combat sports. How did you break in in terms of your own work, and what were your big breaks? How did you get started in this wide world of media and journalism? I mean, I've had a pretty weird relationship with writing up until relatively recently. Um, I started out straight out of college. Uh, a friend of mine had an editorial position with um, SureDog.com, which is basically the biggest, you know, MMA website online. And, you know, I did some work for them and like, you know, every young writer's work, it was terrible garbage that I'm ashamed of to this day and will probably <laughs> never stop feeling that way about it. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I kind of gradually got marginally better and then I kind of just, after a few years, I kind of stepped away from writing to a certain extent. I started doing very little of it. I had just some negative experiences with writing about MMA in terms of, you know, at one point, a UFC commentator went on like some crazy psychotic online rant and used a few homophobic slurs against me and ended up using his pull behind the scenes to cost me some work. And I, this was Joe Rogan. Yeah, this was Joe Rogan. And, uh, yeah, so I, it was just kind of one of those things where I was like, well, this isn't really worth it. I've got a career job. I don't really need to deal with this sort of nonsense. And then a little while later, um, the website, The Classical, kind of just randomly hit me up and asked me if you know I'd like to do some MMA writing for them. They need MMA writers for their launch, and they were big fans of my work, I guess. And it just felt like one of those things that I should try. I should give writing one more try and... You know, I'm lucky enough to say that the editors there were all amazing and helped me develop as a writer in ways that I never thought I would. And, you know, I'll always be indebted to them on that front. And they also use their connections to, you know, secure some paid work for me. And it just kind of grew from there. You know, you your place land, your name lands in a few unexpected places. Editors start to become more familiar with your name. It becomes easier to pitch different editors and from there, it's just kind of a snowball effect to where I am now, where I've, I'm about to uh, leave my career job and kind of make freelance writing a full-time thing. What do you think is the biggest difference stylistically between the way you wrote in the, the days that you will no longer allow your writing to be seen and how you write now? Um, I think the, uh, I mean, if I wanted to be glib about it, I'd say that my earlier writing was bad and now my writing is maybe okay. <laughs> okay. But, uh, no, I think, um, I think it's just a matter of, um, being more secure in yourself. Um, not feeling like you have to make your writing a performative thing for the audience, which I think is a trap that a lot of young writers, regardless of genre or style fall into, they feel like they have to put on a performance for the reader. Expand on that a, a little bit, too, because it, when you talk about obviously you're you're catering to an audience, you're writing for an audience and you want your work to be read. So what is the line there between not between doing compelling work and not performing for an audience? I mean, I try to just forget about the audience completely. Um, you always want your writing to be, you know, well accepted and things like that. But, you know. I write from a somewhat more unusual perspective. I talk about things like, you know, sexism and racism and poverty in sports. And um, 
you know, that's always that's always annoyed people. They hate it. They want their sports to just be sports. They don't like it when people bring the real world, quote unquote, into sports. So, I mean, I've had to in order, you know, this is I can only speak for myself and say that, you know, I just really don't think about the audience very much. I felt like my earlier writing, you know, I can read it now and just be like, these are lines that I wrote thinking about the audience. I felt like I had to throw the audience a bone. I felt like I had to pull back on what I wanted to say a little bit. I felt like I had to dumb this down. I felt like I had to throw in this corny joke or whatever it was. And now I just feel like I try to write as organically as I can. I try to think about what I'm writing and kind of feel comfortable with what I'm saying, feel comfortable that, you know, what I'm putting down is something that, you know, I believe in honestly and that I can defend on its own merits. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that thinking about the audience is the best way to go about your writing unless you're just making the sorts of writing mistakes that, you know, you should have probably sorted out a long time ago. I think a very big moment that I would imagine maybe every young journalist experiences is the first time where you really have to stand behind something you wrote where, you know, you put it out there and you receive some kind of blowback or pushback or people who really make you defend what you wrote. And I think it's in those instances where you realize that you have to, especially if you are writing with points of view or takes or or on subjects that, people might not be comfortable with you really do have to be as comfortable with what you're writing you have to be as in sync with that as possible you have to be as authentic as you can be because if you're not you're not going to be able to stand behind what you're writing you're not going to be able to defend that and i think that's the kind of thing that young journalists learn real fast when they're confronted on something they've done and they have to realize you know if i'm going to put something out there I've got to stand behind it if I'm going to be any kind of credible journalist. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a moment where a lot of writers actually end up going kind of wrong, where they kind of believe in themselves so much that there's no room for self-criticism or error. And it just kind they just kind of form these like shells around themselves and, you know, no criticism can penetrate it. I feel like that's how you end up with, you know, lots of sports writers who, you know, kind of just believe that everything they say is the absolute God's truth. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Tomas Rios, author of the recent article, The Evolution of the Hot Take, A Brief History of Bad Sports Writing. Tomas, uh, you know, we've kind of gotten into this final topic a little bit already, but I always try to ask my guests for their advice for young journalists. And, you know, we really try to make this site into a forum for journalists of all ages. And as someone who obviously thinks critically about media and about writing other than what you've already said, what advice would you give to those just getting started? I mean, what I would say to people getting started is the best thing any writer can get, regardless of where they're at in their career. But especially when you're a young writer is really good editing I feel like that's something that, you know, I didn't have the good sense to seek out earlier in my career because I was, you know, too busy trying to make sure that I was making at least a little bit of money off my writing. And in retrospect, the most valuable editing that I ever received was for stuff that I ended up writing for free. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, 
every young writer should just go out there and write for free. But I'm saying that one thing that they should be conscientious about looking for in terms of their writing is good editing. And if you tie yourself down to one place, unless you get very lucky and that place happens to have great editing, it's not something you're going to get. I feel like a lot of younger writers aren't really um, – they're very focused on trying to land a staff gig or getting themselves on a track to land a staff gig. And as a result, they don't really learn how to freelance, how to pitch pieces effectively, how to develop relationships with editors. You know, these are very important skills that, you know, a young writer should have if they want to really advance their career. And I feel like it's something that I was missing for a very long time. And it's not something I had until people kind of taught it to me and went out of their way to tell me, hey, this is something you really need to have. So, you know, to a young writer, I would say, Learn how to pitch a story, pitch it all over the place, do lots of freelance work if you need to take. I would say that it's probably way better to make writing more of a labor of love than a career track at first. Um, I've developed as a writer the whole time holding down a nine to five job and it's very difficult and very challenging. But at the same time, it tested whether or not I really wanted to be a writer and actually eventually forced me to make the decision that I do want to pursue this as a career. But you would recommend the freelance track for young writers as opposed to going I making the that, writing your nine to five. I would say that there's no way a young writer out the gate is going to be able to make a living as a freelance writer unless they're exceptionally talented. And even then, there's no guarantee of anything. It, a lot of the time, it boils down to contacts and contacts are something you can only develop over time. Unless you just happen to be some wildly connected person. So everyone's situation is different. I would never impose some, you know, universal advice on anyone. But I would say that, you know, valuable things to have are good editing and a diversity of experience with a diverse with, you know, many different outlets. And it's something that you can get pretty reliably by freelancing. You can have a few experiences with an outlet, get a sense of what you're getting out of the experience and keep pursuing it or start looking at different places. But I would say definitely avoid the sort of like, you know, classic, you know, Internet model of, you know, producing lots of user generated content for websites, because then you're pretty much guaranteed not to get any any editing at all. And you're just kind of another voice out there in the wilderness that, you know, isn't really doing anything to get past that point. So I think that the core of it is seek out good editing, work with different people, develop your contacts, and always, always be highly self-critical of your work. Don't let yourself fall into the trap of believing that, you know, everything you write is great and wonderful because odds are it's not. And uh, you, you hinted at this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to ask it specifically. Do you recommend writing for free, especially early on in the game? I mean, it's going it, to, it's a financial calculation that everyone has, you know, that someone as a young writer will probably have to make at one point or another, whether or not they're willing to, you know, do free work. It's something that I had the financial liberty to do because I had a nine to five job that paid me well enough to live. Um, but what I would say is that if you're going to do it, make sure you're getting something out of it. If you're not getting money, then make sure you are getting high quality editing and make sure that, you know, this is a place where, you know, your editors and the people there have the kind of contacts where if they take an interest in you, 
that could actually lead to significant paid work. Pretty much all of the paid work I have now is as a result of connections that I made while writing free stuff for the classical. You know, their editing helped me improve significantly as a writer, and the contacts that I made with the editors led to all sorts of, you know, paid work. That's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty nice way for things to turn out, and I'm not saying that that's the way it'll turn out for everyone. But, you know, pay attention to where, you know, writers you admire are coming from. Pay attention to the places that they work for and try to get your name in those same places. And, you know, if you're making the choice between, you know, if you have some great idea for a piece that you really, really want to write and the only place that you can really see yourself getting it in is at some place that, you know, doesn't pay, make sure that the place that you give that piece to actually is going to have some investment in you beyond just, you know, thank you for the free work. Very good advice. Tomas Rios, uh, that's all the questions I had. Is there anything else, given all the subjects we've broached upon tonight, is there anything else that you wanted to add or that you feel uh, significant to mention? No, I feel like I've done enough talking. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, we appreciate it, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.